Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. What frustrated you particularly in that first half then? Uh, my tactics. <laughs> what way? I, because I decided uh, something new and it was um, it was horrible. <laughs> you are listening to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Breathless after a massive 48 hours of football and that's what we're here to break down for you this week. Arsenal 1, Manchester City 3 in the Premier League plus Champions League reaction. 1-0 defeats for Chelsea and Spurs in Dortmund and Milan and PSG lost to Bayern by the same scoreline and a Benfica win in Bruges as well. I'm Ali Maxwell. On today's episode we've got Michael Cox, we've got Mark Carey, both good guys but old news in a sense. Today it's a pleasure, a privilege and honour to be with Liam Tharm. Sports Journalist Association, British Sports Journalism Awards, one to watch nominee. You'll never sing that. Hi, Liam. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Really well. What a nice accolade for Liam to receive. No, I'm privileged to have a very good team around me, uh, as I said to the guys this morning. Um, I mean, Michael also partly gave me a job, so I definitely have him to thank in that regard. And, and Mark has taught me the weird and wonderful ways of data. So, uh, yeah. I actually found uh, Liam's application and as part of it, he linked to an article that I'd written and mentioned this podcast in his application. And I did say in my little feedback, not to him, but to others, not sure whether he should get positive or negative mm. marks for that. He's played the game. But fair play. Well, was it a mention of this podcast referencing how much better he could make it? Were you to hire him? <laughs> not specifically. No, I think he was just being complimentary. But uh, yeah, has certainly improved the podcast. Well, uh, being one to watch, Liam, not much use for a podcast, is it? But uh, <laughs> hey-ho. Um, we've got a, a couple of games to talk about. It's just the way that the week has fallen with, with so many big games across well, both the Premier League and the Champions League as well. Let's start with the game between first and second in the Premier League. They have switched positions. Manchester City winning at the Emirates by three goals to one and going top of the league. Mark, obviously a significant result. Can we put a, a number on just how significant it was for the title race? Well, you know, I like to look straight at the numbers. Um, and well, Liam and I did a, a preview of the, the game, um, obviously beforehand, earlier this week. And we looked at 538's title uh, projection. Um, which yeah, essentially looks at the probability of, of each team finishing in each position. Um, and at the time that we released it, it was 48% apiece for mm -hmm. both sides uh, to finish on 82 points before the game. So it just showed how close it was. It was tipping Manchester City to, uh, to get the title on goal difference. Uh, and after the game, City are now 62% uh, likely to, to win the league, um, projected on 83 points and Arsenal 34 so, of course, things will change. There's still plenty of games, all the cliches um, that come with it. But it shows just how much City, um, as the favourites to win the title, has kind of swung in their favour. And we can break down the numbers of actually what happened in the game. I wonder if there'd be any Manchester United fans, Michael, listening to this, thinking, hold on, should we be getting a couple of hmm. percentage points here from 5-3-8? 
Yeah, I mean, before the game, Mark said it was 48-48, so that implies 4% for Manchester United. Where have, where have they gone? So Manchester United have a 2% chance of uh, winning the league, which is still giving them something of a shout. Everyone else is uh, less than 1%. So they are still getting a, a look-in, but a very small look-in, shall we say. Okay, well, let's talk about the game and, and how it played out. I, I suppose, Michael, it's good to come to you first. We, we analysed these teams probably in more depth than most others because of their league position. Were there any tactical surprises in the team selection or how the teams lined up here? Yeah, very much so. I didn't think Bernardo Silva was still going to continue to play that role. I thought that was quite weird, actually. I mean, Guardiola did it the weekend against Villa. I think that made a lot of sense. One, because uh, City were going to dominate possession in that game. Two, because Villa played very, very narrow um, in a 4-4-2. So that meant you could have three at the back against the two strikers, fine. And it just meant that Bernardo Silva wasn't engaged in that many one-to-one battles. Villa's right winger was Jacob Ramsey, who's a very good young player, but he's not really a winger. He's a central midfielder, box-to-box player. Um, And in a couple of situations, I thought Bernardo Silva kind of dived into tackles, even in that game. So to give him that role away at Arsenal, where, you know, possession... I think beforehand we would have thought maybe it would be 50-50. In the end, Arsenal dominated it quite considerably. And when he's up against Saka, who's one of, you know, you could you'd probably say the best right winger in the Premier League this year, certainly one of them, I thought it was very strange. And I think Bernardo Silva got away with a foul, really, on Saka in the first five minutes. He fouled him another three times before half-time. And I, I just couldn't really see the logic for it. I just thought he had too much defensive responsibility. And I was very surprised that... Guardiola didn't change things at half time. Eventually, he did change things after 60 minutes. And I think City looked at their best in the final half hour, which reminded me a little bit of the way they played at Stamford Bridge, where he, he tried three different systems, if you like. And it was the third one in the final half hour that got the breakthrough. So you have to give him some credit for fixing the tactics. But he just ended up in the system that I would have expected him to start with, really. Just a solid four, two in front, a little bit more traditional, I think was the way to go. It was interesting to me that Pep had tried the system before. I think we often associate these quirks or these individual tweaks that tend to happen as a one-off in games and they catch us by surprise when the team news comes out. But to see it, you know, sort of already tried and and tested to to a small degree was interesting. I'd have loved to see Benjamin White in that game and possibly see him on the overlap. I think Tommy Esu, I know he made an error for the goal, but I think going forward wasn't fantastic. He, he, I think he's quite a good balanced defender. Um, obviously, he has the versatility, but with knowing how good that Saka-White partnership has been sort of all season, I wonder if Silva or Bernardo, sorry, particularly when he was on a yellow, um, I thought he dealt with Saka about as well as he could because he wasn't going to match him for pace. I don't think he was going to match him really in a 1v1 duel, so had to probably resort to fouling him a bit um, and being physical. Liam, seems notable that with a 36% possession share for Manchester City, that's the lowest for Pep in his whole top flight management career per Opta. Yeah, it's quite a crazy statistic. Um, It was also interesting because I've not got the numbers, but in terms of the number of possessions, it felt like the ball changed hands a lot. So it wasn't purely a case of um, City sitting back and just not seeing the ball at all. Um, I thought they were largely quite good in transition across the game. There are a few times where uh, they won the ball in midfield, sort of, sorry, tried to, you know, break and push down the right. There was a lot of De Bruyne trying to overlap Mares, And and Pep's really intrigued me with his wide area combinations. There's naturally lots of clamour for Phil Phil Foden to play. Um, And I think uh, Grealish and Mares have been the starting sort of 
winger combination, if you like, uh, for the past seven games. And they've been the first choice combination this calendar year, definitely. Um, and post-game, he spoke quite glowingly about, you know, the role that they played in being secure again, as Mark alluded to the preview. We wrote about this and said he might opt for that over Foden because they need to control this game. Um, Grealish completed four of his four dribbles, um, which is great. You know, obviously gets the, the goal to... I'd consider it the winner to, to put them in the lead. Um, and I thought Mahrez was, was okay too. So sort of being vindicated a bit in that regard, I guess, was possibly something that could have been more of a talking point and wasn't. Um, and yeah, their ability, it, it feels like a champions-like thing, I think, to say that a team can go and show a different side, um, may, maybe not be too fantastic, um, and yet still scored quite a trademark City goal to cap it off with Haaland scoring off a De Bruyne cutback. So. I was going to say the first two goals didn't feel necessarily like classic City goals. They don't often get opportunities like that uh, to score goals like that. And then the third one uh, seemed a bit more City. And that kind of comes back to, to Michael. It seemed like you were suggesting you're actually more impressed with them towards the end of the game, albeit they were, they were kind of already ahead at that point. Yeah, definitely. I think the period after they made that change, I mean, it's just quite funny to see uh, Bernardo Silva going from left back to right wing. <laughs> I gather he ran really quickly there, like uh, like he'd just been released from a cage or something. <laughs> just one statistic I really liked um, that shows something about the game, but also is just quite neat, is that it was City's lowest possession share in a Premier League game since April 2012, which was also away at Arsenal. And the reason I like this because uh, is because they lost 1-0 and the goal in that game was scored by Mikel Arteta. Nice. I mean, you want to give credit to Arsenal on this as well and just kind of digging into the numbers a little bit more. I looked at the number of possessions that City had that contained nine or more passes. And we know that they like to hold on to the ball for, for long periods. But against Arsenal, there were only nine occasions of that happening where they had nine or more passes within a, a sequence of play, which was comfortably the lowest um, of the season. The next lowest that they had was 17 occasions um, against Brighton, actually. So it showed just how much they didn't have it kind of their way. You wonder whether there was a certain element where they were kind of happy to to allow Arsenal to to build out and Arsenal were, um, they were strong. And th th I think Jack Grealish said in the, the post-match interview just how much Arsenal did have a lot of the ball and they, they played the better side. So if I'm being honest, I don't think we actually played that well. Um, I think Arsenal played a lot better than us. I thought they were the better team. Really? I haven't seen, I think yeah. so. Did they have more possession? Yeah. yeah, they did. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm 36 percent possession. For you 36. Guys. 36. Yeah. Uh, to some degree, hold your hands up, come away with the, a 3-1 win um, and, and move on. Yeah, uh, this is similar to the FA Cup game um, last month. Arsenal's press there was really, really good. Um, City probably exploited it more, I think, in terms of holding in particular, played in that FA Cup game and really struggled against Haaland. And uh, I think Saliba and Gabriel were a bit better, but um, still he wins the flick on for what leads the error for the first goal. So I know that, again, it's come about uh, from a Tommy Esu error, but this direct play accessing the wingers quite directly um, again Michael's stat that he enjoyed last week about the difference in the aerial success percentage and top Michael first. enjoyed all of his stats last week let's be honest <laughs> but that one in particular enjoyed them more than I enjoyed Liam's some of them <laughs> terrible, but... no uh, I thought that that was a nice to see a continuation of the pattern um, and quite telling I think that that was where the goals came from in terms of mistakes and their moments of quality rather than teams really uh, carving each other open Sorry, this this might be the role of the host to ask a question to the others. But did you think it was a good game or not? No, it was terrible. Yeah, I thought it was a strange very, one because very gritty. like, yeah, there was like the, the first half was there was quite a lot of interesting things going on in terms of the shapes, in terms of the pressing, but it didn't really have that much relationship to actually the chances or what happened in the game. And and I mean, the Arsenal mistakes for the first two goals were just dreadful, weren't they? Had a feel of a final to me, a game where both teams want yeah. to not lose it more than they want to win it. I think Arsenal in particular probably would have been quite happy with the draw. Um, and yeah, as you say, people not wanted to make mistakes. It feels basically like 
it's simple analysis, but it boiled down to a very large mistake from Tomiyasu for one goal, another mistake for the second goal, and a, a deflected finish, which wasn't a particularly good strike. I feel like Grealish, it's like fatal flaw, is that he's not very good at that exact shot. Mm. But it's the sort of shot that he gets a lot because he's so good at cutting inside. I mean, never seems to hit it in or near the corner. And, and that shot wasn't either. It was just the, the nick off the defender that took it over Ramsdale's leg. Was it Tommy Asu that came off on his way in? Oh. I mean, it was a funny one because obviously that was quite a surprise that Arteta played Tommy Asu. And I expect he did that because he really likes him in one, one against ones. I mean, he played him at left back against Liverpool earlier in the season. He did a good job on Salah. And it, I, in a way, I think that sums up the game in the sense that I think he did quite well against Grealish in those specific situations, but obviously made a massive error for the first goal. You know, coach can't really forecast that kind of thing and was kind of unlucky that his, his block sent that shot into the net for the second goal. It, it was that kind of game that it, the, the tactical stuff was not really related to the, the scoring in general. The other thing to mention is that Arsenal squandered at least two fairly good opportunities as well. Um, certainly looking at uh, the the XG values of their shots, the two biggest missed chances for Arsenal were missed by Eddie and Ketia. We spoke very specifically about Arsenal's squad depth a few weeks ago and we spoke quite specifically about Nketiah filling in for, for the injured Gabriel Jesus and having done pretty well at that point. Is it too much of an overreaction to ask whether this is a demonstration of Arsenal maybe not having the quality in reserve positions? I think that probably is fair. I think the first header in particular, it wasn't necessarily that he missed it. It was that he missed it. I mean, it came off his shoulder, didn't it, really, and went wide. I also think another probably crucial thing was that when you look at the way City defended at times in the first half, Ake was playing almost like a left back, like a secondary left back up against Saka. So they had often Bernardo Silva in front of him and Ake just behind. And it meant Ruben Diaz was almost like a lone centre-back tracking those runs and against Nkessi you can probably get away with it I just don't know whether Guardiola would have done that against Gabriel Jesus I think it would have been a different system and then maybe everything changes maybe Ake plays at left back and someone else comes in at centre back uh, I, yeah I like Nkessi I think he's a he's done broadly well since he came in I just think Guardiola probably thought Diaz could handle him on his own which is quite a rare thing to see really and you look at the the penalty situation that does come about is from one of those slip passes sort of between the centre-backs running beyond that. I think there's a good degree of balance to it in Ketty's play, but I think it's almost better back to goal with stuff into feet rather than being sort of that, that box forward. But Mark and I were sort of discussing before the game about, you know, the, the consistency of Arsenal starting eleven and how this will now probably get retrofitted to be, you know, them lacking depth or variety in attack. Obviously, they've got Trossard who could possibly come off the bench or be an alternative uh, in the starting lineup, And it's the same consistency that was key for them earlier on in the season. And, you know, players have understanding and sort of relationships. But um, you do see now they're in quite a bad patch of form, quite a bad patch of attacking form. Um, that's caveated with, you know, Everton uh, and Brentford that they've played in recent weeks. So uh, deep defending teams are going to double up on them in wide areas where they can be really dangerous. But uh, and Ahmed has written about this in sort of using Martinelli and Saka and these sort of more central positions now. And he definitely started to do that in Martinelli in particular. Uh, I think towards the end of the first half, where Zinchenko pushed really wide and he sort of took up those sort of number 10 positions between the lines, trying to receive those passes, build the half turn, and then I guess get into those positions where you can slip players in rather than purely going around the sides and trying to get those, those cutbacks not really his game though Martinelli is it no I mean I wrote a piece I think just before the turn of the year saying that with, with Jesus out it's not just about Nketiah it's about Martinelli has to step up and he hasn't really and I think that is partly because of Jesus 
his absence. I mean, uh, you know, Inketi is not as good a link player. And I also think that because, I mean, Jesus likes drifting around. He likes popping up on the left and the right. And that means Martinelli can have a go through the middle. Um, whereas Inketi's just fixed there. So it kind of means Martinelli's had to stay wider. It's been a tough fit for him, really. But mm. he hasn't offered much of a goal throughout the last three games. It's there, it's there for a Manchester to be successful. It really is. It's just a case of getting it right. We have the public, we have the stadium. I think that the owner or the chairman and the manager are crucial to each other. And if that's a good partnership and, and they're backing each other up and they're supporting each other, there's no reason why it can't be in the top four all of the time. That was the unmistakable voice of Sir Bobby Robson, talking to me, George Culkin, during the months and years before he died. Thanks to the generosity of his family, The Athletic are marking what would have been Sir Bobby's 90th birthday this weekend with Bobby 90, an exclusive four-part podcast series featuring previously unheard interviews with one of football's most iconic figures. It's packed with stories about growing up in the North East, managing Newcastle United, Barcelona, England, as well as players like Gaza, Brian Robson and Alan Shearer. And it details his repeated bouts with cancer, establishing the charitable foundation which carries his name. It's Bobby at his charismatic and emotional best. Listen to Bobby 90 for free by searching for Pod on the Tyne on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all usual podcast providers. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. City winning a weird game, uh, going top of the table, uh, albeit having played a game more and favourites now in the eyes of the projection websites and the bookmakers as well to win another title. While that game was going on, Chelsea were in Dortmund playing a Champions League knockout first leg game. They lost 1-0 in 
a pretty ridiculous, incredibly entertaining game. After 30 minutes, the shot count was 10 to 2 in favour of Dortmund, albeit none were on target, seven of the 10 blocked, which probably gives you an idea of the sorts of shots that they were taking at that time. But then from 30 minutes onwards, it was 19 Chelsea shots to Dortmund's four, but one Dortmund goal. Um, There's one really specific question I want to ask you guys about here. I find it really, really quite an interesting discussion. It's about the goal. Adeyemi picks up a a corner that's been cleared and has the whole pitch ahead of him with just Enzo Fernandez to beat and then Kepper, of course. And he does it magnificently, showing incredible pace, skill 1v1 to beat first Enzo and then the composure to go around Kepper as well. That goal from Karim Adeyemi was quite something. How would you describe it? (laughs) Meep, meep. Um, So it was, um, this is the quality. No doubt that it was a fantastic piece of individual play. Now, this morning I've I've seen more than one suggestion, a narrative, if you like, starting to build that Chelsea leaving one man back from an attacking corner when they know that Adeyemi has this ability and this raw pace is naive. That's the word that I saw used, naivety. And even Jude Bellingham in his post-match was quite keen to, to push this. He made a point of saying, I'm very surprised that they only left one man back because Adeyemi, we, we know he can do this. I'm surprised they didn't. I've got to ask you, maybe starting with you, Liam, about this set-piece be- best practice, right? Attacking set-piece best practice. Chelsea had a corner. They had six men in the middle. They had one man taking the corner. They had two just outside the uh, the box. And they had one back on halfway in Enzo Fernandez. Dortmund had nine of their 10 outfield players inside the box defending the cross and Adeyemi standing one yard outside of it. Is it naive to leave just Enzo Fernandez back or is it normal? Does Do many teams in the world put, an, to put two men back on halfway just because the opposition has a quick striker that might run the whole pitch and score? It's probably a bit of both to answer the question. Um, I think I'd maybe put question marks over Enzo Fernandez being the one to, to have back. I mean, one, we've spoken about his set-piece taking ability. I'm surprised he wasn't you know, further upfield or, or closer to or taking the set-piece himself. Um, I will nod to the fact that João Felix probably should score um, off the flick-on. So really, you're looking for... There's a sequence of things you can prevent here or things that you can change and that, that goal never sort of transpires. But um, I think you'd probably look to match Adeyemi for pace a bit more. Um, to use a, a Bryson example, Tarek Lamptey is often the last defender back at uh, set pieces because he's just so fast. Um, he's also five foot four. <laughs> Precisely. But then my question would be if you look at someone like Mudrik, um, who's probably one of the Chelsea's fastest players, I think he's the fastest in the Champions League this season. I'd have question marks over maybe his defensive ability 1v1, but he might be more suited to defending someone with raw pace or just cancelling out that threat um, altogether. But then there's there's parts where you know they don't score off the first header, um, they don't then win the, the rebound as it drops, it gets cleared. And I'd also have question marks over Kepa sort of flying out at the end and making that finish around impossible. But you also have to give credit to the attackers. There's just that sequence of events that you sort of stop one of those and it's it's all the details that are in there. I mean, we've spoken before about corners and, and in-swinging and out-swinging corners of in-swingers being a higher risk to actually get first contact, but a greater reward that you're going to score if you are to get that first contact. So there's probably an element from a defensive perspective of it having a, a higher risk of if it then goes to the goalkeeper and the goalkeeper quickly distributes it or it gets headed out and it goes more into central areas, then you're more likely to be, as the attacking team, susceptible to the counter-attack. Um, but Liam made a good point that I was going to pick up on as well is that I could be wrong, um, but I feel like there's a lot of teams that will keep a, a fullback uh, as the the last man back for for the exact same reason. I know that Liverpool do the same because they are fairly pacey and probably, if nothing else, able to 
jockey and hold up the the player enough to be able to get your other uh, players back as well. And it doesn't feel, or it certainly didn't feel like Enzo Fernandez was fulfilling that role um, as being that last man back. So probably poor choice of actually having him as that player. But I don't think the that having the number of players that they did was the issue. They probably could have put more stock into maybe putting a second player back when you look at Dortmund's threats. Mark and I sort of went through and previewed um, sort of all, all these ties. And the big thing for Dortmund is I think they have the joint lowest possession in the group stages. They are largely a transitional team. Um, you look at how they're going to play with Seb Hilaire as their number nine primarily to you know, sort of play off him. And um, a lot of their best moments did come, you know, with these quick, incisive attacks, not always this, um, you know, uh, overly extravagant or expansive sort of build-up play, which I think we've come to sort of uh, expect from Dortmund, especially in Europe being almost at times, I don't mean this as an insult, but more as a compliment, playing like an away team at home that are good at not losing games and then sort of scoring goals from these situations. So this is a pattern, I guess, yeah, we've seen for a long time now. I think it's worth pointing out that Brentford often leave no players back. They push everyone forward for mm. corners and that has at times worked very well for them. They also conceded... Well, just an incredible goal in a playoff semi-final game against Bournemouth where it was headed away and Dan Juma yeah. just, just took it all the way. It was remarkable. But so Brentford used to have uh, a pub on every corner and now they have <laughs> 10 men forward at every corner. <laughs> it's been a real shift. Excellent. Uh, it, was, it was an amazing goal. It was also a real kick in the teeth for a Chelsea team that created quite a lot of chances considering they're the away team in a, in a Champions League knockout tie. Felix off the bar, Felix over the bar, Felix not quite doing enough with, with that uh, flick on from the, the aforementioned corner, uh, one off the line as well from another set piece, Kula Bali. It was a, a frustrating night again uh, from for Chelsea and from, from the fans' perspective. Michael, uh, I suppose from a sort of objective analysis point of view, you have to think that there are some, some positives to take from the performance and the fact that they were able to create so many chances and you know, on another day, three of those go in and it looks like a sensational uh, away win. What I find interesting projecting forward to the second leg now, Chelsea are favourites to win the game in 90 minutes, as you'd expect, but they are not favourites to progress in the tie. Now, this is the sort of scenario where in previous years, away goals would have been fascinating, particularly with Dortmund's counter-attacking threat. Uh, as it is, it, it changes the potential of the game fairly significantly. What do you make of, of this one heading into the second leg? Yeah, this result in particular does seem like one where it changes completely where you don't have the away goal. Yeah, I'd say probably Dortmund, marginal favourites. That makes sense to me. But um, yeah, Chelsea created enough chances to think that they can they can do something in the return leg. But as as Liam says, I mean, Dortmund are quite used to playing in those counter-attacking situations. I think they'll be relatively happy to sit deep and soak up pressure and maybe try and take advantage of the fact Chelsea don't always have a proper penalty box threat um, and play on the break. So, yeah, I didn't see this game because I was watching the other one, but looking forward to the uh, second leg. I mean, on the note, to put some numbers on the note of Chelsea missing a so many chances throughout the season. I looked at in all competitions this season, they've scored 30 goals from uh, an expected goals of 38. So eight goals fewer uh, across the whole season than expected it is quite notable. And it could be the difference, you know, across the, the course of the season between uh, a loss and a draw or, you know, a draw and a win, of course. And the, the outlook and the game state completely changes when those goals go in. So it's not just necessarily those eight goals being the difference, but it's how that would then affect the game if they score in the first 10 minutes, etc. Um, could be completely different. So there is an element to say with Graham Potter that the, the process does look good. Um, Liam will know from his Brighton years that it does seem to be a pattern that you're able to get to the, the final third and do everything right there. But it's just that, that final piece of the puzzle. 
I think one positive, because there's, I think there's a lot of negatives surrounding this for Chelsea, is that I think Jean Felix and Kai Havertz work quite well as a partnership, and I maybe didn't expect that from them. They feel quite similar in terms of players. I think Havertz is more like a number nine than many give him credit for. He does a lot in behind quite well. He's he's quite tall. He attacks crosses fairly well, I think. But um, it was a lot more in transition, particularly breaking from deep. Um, but they would just change quite well. So often it would be uh, Felix receiving and, and playing into Havertz. Uh, there's the shot where Jao Felix hits the bar that Havertz, I think, dribbles with the ball and then plays the cutback. Uh, and this was the same at West Ham, where they both scored, I think, from offside positions in the first half. But that's coming down to the details of the timing of their run. They're not, you know, they're finding each other, they're playing the passes, they're making the runs, they're just timing it ever so slightly wrong. And I think that for a team that had struggled and were bottom half in the Premier League for things like three balls, for, you know, creating good chances now, to have these players so early on, this is what Jean Felix's third or fourth game for Chelsea. Um, I know he's only on loan, but having these players actually successfully integrating, I would see as at least some form of positive. Um, and you'd hope that give them enough of these chances, they are actually both quite good goal scorers. Okay, so there, there might be some who'd say, you've left Aubameyang out of the Champions League squad altogether and he's someone who generally you, you, you back to finish chances and this is a team that's creating chances and not finishing them. But would you lean towards thinking, actually, there's been enough in a couple of games worth of Havertz and Felix to, to really give this a go and see where it can take take Chelsea? Yeah, I'd say so. I also don't think Aubameyang's uh, back-to-goal play and sort of build-up play is as good. So I think some of the chances that end up getting created where Felix or um, or Havertz are dropping in and playing passes, um, I don't think Aubameyang could do as many of those moments. So might not be able to create uh, as many of those opportunities. And I think they're just a really good pair in transition. Obviously, you've got one left footer and one right footer there between them. Um, you've got a shorter, shorter player and you've got um, a player that's a quite a good header of the ball. So I think they're quite actually a well-balanced pairing, um, despite both not really being players that we'd assign as sort of playing in fixed sort of spaces or on the last line of defence. They maybe want to roam a bit more and have a bit more freedom, but I don't necessarily see too much of a problem where you've got particularly Mudrick on the left as someone who's going to play high and wide and want to cut in. Maybe that then does give you room, whereas we're sort of used to having a fixed number nine and then the other players being a bit more free. Maybe that's just Chelsea's player on the left wing. Okay, well, also on, on Wednesday night, Benfica won 2-0 in Bruges. I, I, I basically putting this down as a 2-0 thumping. It was very one-sided, uh, dominant in the first half where Rafa hit the bar. Gonzalo Ramos had a couple of good chances as well. And then in the second half, it was a, a João Mario penalty that put them ahead and David Neres at the end, uh, making the most of an error at the back for Bruges. And I think that does reflect the level of dominance from what I saw. There's an amazing article on the Athletic site about Benfica's academy right now, which you should absolutely bookmark to read after you've heard this pod. Uh, let's talk about Tuesday's games. Milan won, Spurs nil. Uh, Liam, what would you say was the tactical story of this game? Well, Milan are interesting because I think they had their worst defensive month ever in January uh, as a club, I ever. believe. That that was the the um, what the commentary said on BT Sport. <laughs> um, so I'm going to hope that that's been, been fact-checked. But I actually watched them at the Stadio Olimpico uh, against Lazio and they got pulled apart. Um, they played a 4-2-3-1, they lost 4-0, uh, they couldn't defend in wide areas, you know, they were conceding cutbacks from both sides. Um, they, of course, lost, uh, they conceded five at home to Sassuolo, Inter put three past them in, in the Super Cup um, and Stefano Pioli, the manager, um, he said after that Sassuolo defeat that uh, the things that worked up until a few weeks ago are not working, so it's clear that there will be some changes and that change came about really, I mean, it's coincided with the injury to Fikayo Tomori, it's going from a back four to 
more of a, a 3-4-2-1. Uh, had Simon Kiara in the middle, who I think is a very good physical presence, maybe not the most mobile, um, but he was exceptional against Harry Kane, you know, tight to him, followed him all the way. Um, that was the same for Kalulu on the right uh, and Chell, I believe it's pronounced, uh, on the left, who was on his Champions League debut uh, and really nullified the threat of Dejan Kulisevsky, which I think is a real sort of hallmark of where he was at. Um, the three of them were just tracking these runs. At times, they'd go all the way into the final third with them. Um, and this is also, I think, a fault of Spurs that I'm, I'm sure Mark, Mark will touch upon, um, that they just didn't do enough then to get runners in behind them. And they didn't do enough to sort of change their tactics or change their approach, which I think we've sort of said about them all season. Mm. Um, but yeah, to adjust, you know, from conceding so many goals and so many chances to give up hard anything, no big chances conceded. This is the second time uh, in a row now that they've won a game 1-0, so more clean sheets. Um, and this with a second choice goalkeeper in goal as well um, so fantastic yeah I want to come on to the goalkeeper as well but I, I do think coming to a, a back three did allow Simon Kier to just literally follow Harry Kane um, which when you said about there's no runners in behind it was almost that it was stopped at source because Kane was dropping in trying to be that person to obviously do what he does best make make himself kind of available to, to be on the turn and Kier was just really up, up close against him and Kane actually suffered six fouls in that game which was the joint highest um, of any player in the Champions league this season so it shows, shows just how much Spurs were trying to get it into him and, and Milan were just obviously cutting it off at the source there was a certain extent to which I thought that Kier was maybe being a bit risky at times because there was probably enough there to get two yellows so you may be thinking the return leg if he tried to do the same maybe um, he'd maybe get caught out a little bit but it also meant for, for Spurs one key sort of attacking threat that they had was then using those fouls that they had to to have a threat in wide free kicks and Milan we've spoken before I think Michael did a piece on um, sort of Italian football in general how deep their defensive line was from wide free kicks and it was similar in this game as well but I do think that Spurs were a threat from from the wide free kicks and corners of course and we know with their set piece set piece coach just how how threatening they were so it seemed like a Overall, a quite a solid away performance by Spurs. They did give up a few chances, um, and I think the expected goals was well in favour of of Milan. But I think if they were, I think that overall they'll be pleased to have come away with with a one nil defeat, and then they've obviously got the the return leg. I think I'm maybe a bit more harsh than Mark on this. I thought Spurs are quite uninspiring given the quality in their front three. I know that they were without players in sort of central midfield, but I thought Pape Sarr in particular had a really nice expansive passing range, played some good diagonals, a few good line breaks and Skip sort of neatly tailed off on that and just being quite a neat, um, you know, uh, ball player in terms of just circulating the play. I think he had the highest pass accuracy. It was well over 90%, um, which was which was really nice. But yeah, they, they didn't do enough to test what is a fairly new um, Milan shape. They weren't getting those runners in behind. Uh, Emerson Royale seemed to have issues all night because Teo Hernandez, as we know he likes to, was pushing on quite high and quite wide. Often he was getting in behind Royale for the goal in the build-up, actually. He ends up beating Romero in the air on a duel and then obviously gets, gets the cutback off. Um, but... I was just amazed that Spurs continued to attack so much down the right, um, which was down, obviously, uh, Milan's left side where Teo Hernandez was. But on the right, they were playing Alexis Salamakas, who I see as a winger or a number 10, sort of functionally filling into this role. Uh, when Milan had the ball, they were really playing a 4-3-3. Salamakas would push up high and wide on the right, with Leo on the left, uh, and Giroud in sort of the number nine. And to give Milan credit, 
They have struggled to find Giroud, I think, more in recent weeks. They found him more with passes and he did manage to play a few set passes off. We did see quite a bit of Rafa Leal um, sort of dribbling, taking yards in transition. He's really smart because often when they regain the ball, lots of players will run forward. He tends to just sort of jog five yards to the right and opens out to see the whole pitch and often that then puts him in space. Uh, I think he got fouled twice in sort of the first six minutes, but Conte just seemed, and Spurs seemed so set on trying to make this plan A so amazing that like we've spoken about with City and other teams where you know other coaches other managers will use a plan B, C, D to win a game mm. that just doesn't happen for Spurs their first sub was on 70 minutes and it was Richarlison for Kudusevsky. Um so they'd spent over an hour at 1-0 down and the subs seemed to be like for like they didn't change anything I do think Spurs' build-up was very slow. I do agree that there's there's an element to to be critical of Spurs. Their, their build-up was really quite slow, quite predictable, and Spurs are so threatening kind of in those transitional moments with the, the forward line, and it just seemed like the, there wasn't too much kind of threat in behind. But on the note of Saar and, and Oliver Skip, I do think they did have a, a great game. A lot has been said about um, their lack of experience in the Champions League or lack of experience in general um, at the the upper echelons of, of senior football. But I do think they had a, both had a great game. And looking at Saar especially, he had more touches, 77 touches, more than any player on the pitch. So it showed just how much he was involved, but not just necessarily on the ball. He had five tackles and an interception. That was the joint highest uh, alongside even Perisic uh, for Spurs. And he made some really good line-breaking passes as well. He was quite brave on the ball, probably more so than, than Skip, who, um, as you say, Liam, he did have the highest passing accuracy, th- uh, 93%. Percent, um, which was highest uh, of any Spurs player. So um, I'd say that Skip likes to keep it nice and simple, um, but Saar was, was quite brave on and off the ball. He was pressing really high as well. So reasons to be positive um, considering the, the injury issues that they've got in central midfield. Uh, Michael, you watched PSG Bayern on Tuesday night. Um, the same scoreline as the 2019-20 final. 1-0 to Bayern in Paris. Another Damaging, damaging Champions League knockout result for, for PSG when when you're constantly told that they have one singular goal. It just makes these games feel even more important and, and even more damaging when they don't win them. Uh, was this an interesting one to watch from a strategic point of view? Kind of. I didn't think it was a great quality game. Strategically, it was kind of interesting. I mean, I always think that PSG, in a way, it's not disastrous if one of the front three is out for one of these games because I think when you have three players doing no defending, you're in big, big trouble. So Mbappe was out. So it was Neymar and Messi as a front two, really. Quite a flat 4-4-2 otherwise, although I think more like 4-4-0-0-2 in practice in the defensive phase of play. And it was the same old issues really for PSG. They've just got eight players defending, two players up the pitch, no one really connecting them. I thought the funny thing was that Bayern were afforded so much space in midfield or so much time in midfield that actually their passing tempo wasn't high. It was almost like they kind of just got into a kind of comfortable zone where they weren't looking to move the ball quickly. And when they did after half time, I think they were much improved. PSG, uh, Gautier did try to change a couple of things at one point. He was dropping uh, one of the midfielders back into the back line to form a five at the back because Bayern were playing wing backs and they were causing really big problems. But really the most interesting thing and kind of contradicts what I said at the start was that when Mbappe came on, um, I mean, he was he played half an hour. He's probably the man of the match. I mean, he was absolutely incredible. If that's really? him at 70, 80%, fit I mean it's just he was so much better than everyone else on the pitch obviously very uh, unlucky not to uh, equalise when there was a slight offside on uh, Nuno Mendes going forward at the counter attack Did Bayern do the same thing that they did in that final which I remember you writing really well about which is like absolutely bonkers high line even when defending a, a lead it was like 
pouring petrol on fire. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't quite that extreme, but it was it was still pretty high, yeah, and, and left space in behind, which to be fair, Neymar and Messi were not really exploiting at all. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't think Bayern was sensational in this game, but they're just a more cohesive unit, more compact. Uh, Goretzka and Kimmich have just got a great relationship in midfield. Obviously, they've got even more options at wing-back now because Cancelo's come in. I, th- I thought did quite well in the first half, but got taken off uh, for Al- Alfonso Davies coming in. So yeah, it wasn't, to be honest, it wasn't a classic. It, it felt to me like um, just two sides not at their best. I think PSG have got real problems when Mbappe doesn't play. Um, I think he's very different in terms of a style to, to both Messi and Neymar. I think they're both a lot more defeat players. They almost need him at times to make those runs to push defences back, uh, to take defenders away. Um, and also, he's often the one, I think, running onto their three balls and their sort of service. So, neither of them are particularly sort of big box presences. Uh, it's worth noting now that this is a third loss in a row for PSG. That's a Champions League game they've lost, uh, a Ligue 1 game uh, against Monaco, and also Coupe de France, uh, round of 16 game at Marseille. So, that by their standards is probably about as disastrous as I think it gets. Um, they've looked uninspiring at times this season, even when they have had sort of Mbappe on the field as well. Um, just sort of needing more more tempo, more quality. Their patterns don't look sort of fantastic. Um, so I think they're very interesting to, to watch going forward because if obviously they don't um, sort of come through this and, and turn things around, then it's sort of where do you go from here as they've been adding all this quality um, sort of to their side. And you think, what do you then need to actually make it through and, and get farther in this competition? Well, with Mbappe missing, there was... One very notable starter for PSG, I think that we have to mention when a 16-year-old starts a Champions League knockout game of this magnitude, Warren Zaire Emery, born in 2006. Uh, Good to see a Warren. Don't see enough Warrens these days, (laughs) first name Warren. Michael, um, what sort of a player is Zaire Emery? Did, Did he stand out, make an impact on this game? Yeah, I mean, played on the right of a four, quite energetic going forwards. I think at times... In the first half, PSG did look quite promising down that flank when uh, when actually Messi was often the one to drift wide to the right, kind of on the outside of uh, of Bayern's three-man defence. Yeah, it was the first I've seen of him, really. He looked all right. I wasn't surprised when he got taken off when there was a change of system. Um, but yeah, by all accounts, for, I mean, 16 is very, very young to be playing in the Champions League knockout stage, isn't it? It's remarkable. Yeah, I heard that uh, Lionel Messi and Sergio Ramos had their debuts before he was born, which is just, it's disgusting. Isn't it? I remember 2006. It's not fair. I do as well, just the record. Oh, well, there that. you go. That's nice. A good way to end it. What a great few days. Uh, feels like top level European football really started to rev its engine. This week, for the next three months, we're going to be hitching a lift on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Loads of fun plans and ideas uh, for the next few weeks and months. Make sure you're here for all of it. Subscribe to this podcast feed, theathletic.com forward slash tactics, the place to go to read all about it all day, every day, award-nominated journalists such as as Liam Tharm. And we should say a number of your colleagues, Liam, as well, nominated uh, in other categories. £1.99 a month for 12 months if you go to theathletic.com forward slash tactics and sign up today. Make sure that you listen next week to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to the guys for talking me through it. And we'll talk to you again soon. The Athletic.